From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. Welcome to episode 29, part 2, the second half of our Q&A event from Dublin Sugar Club held on the 3rd of March. If you haven't listened to part 1 already, be sure to check that out, and if you're new to the Blizzard and this is the first you're hearing about us, you can find out more about the magazine at our website, theblizzard.co.uk, or you can find us on Twitter, at Blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D. For now, back to Dublin, and our host for the evening, Owen McDevitt of Second Captains. They've forgotten about us already. <laughs> Just took a 15-minute break. Folks, we will get to loads more of your questions in the next little while. I have got some great ones in on Twitter. First of all, at Blizzard, Joe O'Donnell says, Jonathan Wilson has written that the Argentina win in the 1978 World Cup kept the Junta in power. Are there any other instances where football has changed the course of human history? <laughs> That's a deep question to start. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think... Up to a point, every match in some way changes the course of human history. But I mean, you, know, you can pick loads of examples. I mean, uh, England's defeat to West Germany in the quarterfinal of the World Cup in 1970. Howard Wilson always blamed for, for losing him the election that year. But he said it, it kind of created this feel bad factor, which led people to vote Tory, which makes sense. Um, <laughs> or, or, for instance, um, you look at the Hungary team of the early 50s. And they were sort of riding the crest of this euphoric wave of um, this sort of benign communism uh, that had sort of slipped out with Stalin's shadow. Um, and, and yeah, they win the Olympics in 50, uh, 52. They beat England 6-3 in 53. And you get these huge, um, huge celebrations on the streets, millions of people coming out in the streets of Budapest. And they, you know, they realised pretty quickly... Um, that if you have that many people, the police can't control it. So what then happens is in 54, when they, they lose to West Germany in the final, which it's, itself was hugely significant in terms of West Germany's um, self-acceptance as a nation, you know, that, that sort of really, I think, was w- uh, one of the first times, or you know, maybe the, 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 the first symbolic moment at which West Germany really saw itself as a nation as distinct from East Germany and Germany as a whole. Uh, but after they, they lose that, there's then all these... Um, sort of quite bitter protests. And they realised, well, hang on, the police can't control us if we're celebrating. They certainly can't control us if we're protesting. So there's a lot of people say that that was one of the reasons why the uprising happened in 56, that there's a recognition that get people on the street and the police can't do anything. Uh, turns out Soviet tanks can do something. Uh, and, and sometimes... Uh, <laughs> I was about to make a very serious point here, and that's... Uh, Sometimes it can, it, it can also work in a paradoxical fashion. 12th of July 1998, France wins the World, the World Cup with the so-called Black Blanc-Beur team, and everybody thinks it's the dawn of a new era, and it's not. Um, the enthusiasm lasts for um, a few weeks, a few months perhaps, and we think, up yours Jean-Marie Le Pen. And actually what we realize afterwards is that We've, been, we've become victims of a myth that was created on that particular night. So, in, in, in which case, it also was a game of historical importance. So, completely agree with uh, Jonathan. I can't see which game of that magnitude cannot be a historical event. Paddy O'D on Twitter says, when the guys were last in Dublin, the panel seemed certain the 2022 World Cup would be moved from Qatar. Do they still think the same? Philippe? Not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that um, dear Gianni Infantino um, said when uh, he was, after he was elected president of FIFA and having a, a game with his chums, most of whom are clients of Georges Mendes, um, did I say that? Um, was to reassure everybody that the World Cup in 2018 would happen in Russia, the 2022 World Cup would happen in Qatar. Uh, I think we are all aware of it, and I think we talked about it before that, that the reason why the House of FIFA crumbled the way it did was because of the choice that was made on 2nd of December 2010 when, when Qatar was elected, was voted in as a, a host nation instead of the United States of America, who didn't take it very kindly. I mean, there's this famous episode where Bill Clinton, who was in Zurich at the time, 
Um, Stains his pants. <laughs> Monica, come here. And um, he took an ashtray, because you could still smoke in those days, and he threw it against the mirror and shattered it to bits. And uh, since then, the Americans have obviously been quite angry at what happened. Um, but it seems they've um, done a deal now so that um, they will get 2026. Um, I know it's been uh, denied by Jenny Infantino, but um, I don't think anybody in their right mind are now thinking, okay, 2012, 2018 Russia, 2022 Qatar, 2026 USA, 2030, if you're romantic, Uruguay and Argentina, 2034 China. So I think that the climate has changed for that. It, it will take something a bit special, perhaps coming from the Swiss investigation, uh, to change the location of the World Cup. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if the dates were revised. If we came back to uh, a tournament that happens not in the winter, but that the question will be asked, perhaps we could stage it in uh, April and May. If the 2026 World Cup does take place in the US, does that mean Diana Ross will get to take that penalty again? <laughs> I hadn't thought of this one, to be honest with you. Um, sure, Janny did. Yes. Uh, or maybe Janet Jackson, yes. We can look forward to that. <laughs> we'll move to the back of the room now for a few questions. We certainly will in the, in the next episode. Just as the microphone gets up there, is Infantino the modern reformer that FIFA is crying out for? No. Okay, I think that's enough time for the microphone to be, to be moved to the top of the room. I uh, uh, just wondering if you could say a few words about Euro uh, 2016. What uh, effect do you think the 24-team format will have, the new qualifiers, uh, Iceland, Northern Ireland, uh, the atmosphere, what will it be like in France with the heightened security? Uh, and the football, will we see some of the more open football we saw in the group stages at the Brazil World Cup, or will it be what we've come used to in international tournaments now, lots of one nils? Do you want me, me to go first on the format, and then you can talk about security? Yeah, you do that. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that the format is a, is a farce. I mean, it, you know, I can see why they did it, but... I mean, they, they, they did it for political reasons, they did it for financial reasons, but nobody can believe they did it for, for, for football reasons. Uh, a 16-team tournament, four groups of four, is perfect. It only goes on for three and a half weeks, which is you know, a, a, uh, a period of time that means that, by most importantly, it means that I'm not exhausted by the end of it. That, 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 that's the key point. But also, you know, it, it means that pretty much any country in Europe can host it. I mean, or you know, a smaller one can band together with a smaller one next to it. But you don't need vast resources to host a 16-team tournament. Um, it means that you get, say the start of any Euros, there's maybe eight to ten teams have some kind of chance of winning it. It means in the group stage, they're playing each other on a fairly regular basis. It means you get big games early on. It means every game counts. Uh, 24 teams with 16 of them going through means you're going to spend two and a half weeks getting rid of eight teams, which the qualifiers could have got rid of anyway. So the, the qualifiers this time turned out to be quite good fun. I suspect that won't necessarily be the case in the future. And should you really anyway be making the qualifiers fun at the expense of the tournament itself? So I, I'm, I'm concerned. I think there'll be a lot of kind of pointless games, and I think it'll be to answer the question about what kind of football we'll see, I think there'll be a lot of games, particularly between sort of bigger nations, um, that will be, say, 1-1 one, one with 20 minutes to go, and both teams will sort of go, you know what, if we, if we draw this, we're probably going to go through. Let's just, and you know, they'll sit back and take that. Whereas maybe the previous format, there was more incentive to go out and try and win it because you'd not only guarantee your own passage, but you'd also possibly be putting out a rival. So Jonathan, you are, just to be clear, you one of those extraneous countries that you're talking about, you actually are sitting in right now. <laughs> so we might well, have to rethink that. What I've always said is, why not have all 54 UEFA members there? <laughs> Philippe, the, uh, the security? Are well, concerned? as far as security is concerned, I mean, it's, uh, there's a very strange atmosphere in France uh, around the, the tournament um, at the moment. Uh, it was actually James who told me today... Tell, tell our friends what you told me, because it was, it was the information comes from you. About my briefing. 
Yes. Yes. So I, uh, I'm going to the Euros with a broadcaster, and uh, we had a uh, briefing full day on Tuesday. It's uh, one of the most tedious days of my life. And, uh, and towards the end of it was a security briefing, um, which was, uh, France, as you know, is in a, in a state of emergency. It's one of the most dangerous places on the planet. Um, uh, don't, don't yeah, take... Somalia, forget don't, it. Uh, don't, Syria, forget it. Yeah, Syria is a, a, a walk in the park. Um, yeah, don't walk in the park in, in Paris. It's, um, um, well, there's a lot of dog shit in the parks. There is, there That's is. true. Yeah, they need to, they need to improve that. Um, and uh, we were advised to uh, wear tracking devices. Tracking devices. It might, not, uh, it might surprise you to, uh, to learn that this was an American organization that wanted to track <laughs> our, uh, our every movement. And, um, and, and we were told uh, by this uh, very um, direct and uh, intimidating uh, uh, figure that, um, uh, yeah, we need to have a plan. Because if you don't have a plan, you're stupid. And, uh, and, and that, you know, if, if gunmen come at you, you need to have a plan to get out. Like if QPR had a five-year plan or something. Yeah, like that. The, ex- the same plan. Um, if that plan doesn't work, run. And uh, if you can't run, fight for your life. Those were the words that he used. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It should be, yeah, a great, we're, we're, we're. Should be a great... Yeah, the summer of love. I can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on, on a more, more seriously, all, um, one, one thing which came out of the, um, the awfulness of uh, what happened in November was the fact that um, probably the greatest carnage uh, would have been inflicted at the Stade de France uh, for that game. And that because precisely it is an event that is organized and has got proper security and proper stewards in place, none of the three attackers managed to get into the stadium. Uh, Seb Blatter had an extraordinary explanation for that. don't know if you've heard this one. It's absolutely true. We should all shake hands? He didn't say that. He said... Even they respected the universality of football. <laughs> Bring back Sepp. I am not inventing this. It is absolutely true. The fact is that three stewards or more um, did their job properly, and those three dickheads uh, blew themselves up, and that was that. And unfortunately, one person was killed by, by shrapnel. But it could have been an absolute carnage, and it wasn't. So it is, in a way, far easier to police an event like this than it is to police a bar in the open where some nutters can come with Kalashnikovs or throw grenades. So um, the atmosphere in France is not great. I'll I'll be frank with you. I mean, I was in in Paris uh, last week, and I'm I'm going back um, this coming week as well. And it's something which is very much at the back of everybody's mind. But... um, I think that the preparations are... I mean, the, the fear and the scaremongering that I've heard about is nonsense, really. Okay, next question. Near the back again. Hi, lads. Um, Miguel Delaney uh, wrote a few <laughs> weeks ago that... <laughs> <laughs> that uh, Jose Mourinho wrote uh, a letter to Manchester United offering his services. Um, Should we call him? Yeah. Firstly, do you think that really happened? And secondly, if you were right to if you were right to a club via love letter, who would it be and why? So, what was the first question? I didn't hear. First question was: Did do you do you think that Jose Mourinho actually wrote to Manchester United? Yes. Offering his services. Yes. The second question for for all of you is: um, If you were to. If you were to write to a club offering your services via love letter, who would it be and why? Well, I, I, I think the term love letter is, is where... Oh, hold on, Miguel. Um, <laughs> Miguel. Wh- where... Yeah. Should we put... You're on speakerphone here. Uh, we've had a question. We are at the Sugar Club in Dublin. Did, did Jose Mourinho genuinely write this letter to uh, Manchester United? So he did. <laughs> okay, thank you. We've got our answer. 
Yeah, I, I think the term love letters is the, the misleading bit. It, it, you know, that was the, the headline that was used. Um, and for, for those of you who, who maybe don't necessarily understand the, the mechanics of how, how newspapers are put together, the reporter writes the story, you file it to the, to the desk, and they tidy it up and make it fit the space, and then they put a headline on, and you as a writer have no control over that headline. And very occasionally, uh, by which I mean probably 90% of the time, um, you, you're infuriated by that headline because it either emphasises the wrong part of the story or it sensationalises it. And because a lot of um, the people who comment on Twitter and comment on articles are... <laughs> in the room. <laughs> they, 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 there's, it's, it's perhaps the case they don't necessarily read the, the words <laughs> that carefully. So I think it was a love letter thing that provoked um, some ribaldry. Um, it, it was, as I understand it, a six-page letter in which Mourinho laid out what he thought Manchester United could be doing better. And that seems to me actually a not unreasonable thing to have done. If you're a recently out-of-work manager and you think a job might be, that you fancy might be coming up, you, you write a letter to them saying, this is what I'd do. Love Jose. <laughs> What was the other part of that? Who, who it was? Who would you? What club would you write a love letter to? I think that was the second part of it. If anyone was offering their services as a player or manager here, this is very hypothetical now. I, I would absolutely do it to Marcelo Bielsa. Uh, just, just to, just to pursue Bielsa for six months would be brilliant. What a, what a book you get out of that. Um, we, we were talking earlier about um, a question we might have, which I don't think we are going to do. And it is actually something that the, the Football Ramble asked on Monday. But if you were going to cast any person in football as a character in the film, who would you, who would you cast? And I thought, Marcelo Bielsa would be brilliant in the Benedict Cumberbatch role as Alan Turing in the imitation game. <laughs> just, he wouldn't need to build a computer. He'd just look at numbers and somehow he'd kind of spew out the right answer for like the first three years of the war, and then it would... <laughs> All right, another question? We're s still in the back. Yeah, we will start moving back down the room in a few minutes. There's a microphone just on the way up to you. And it should be arriving any time now. Hi, guys. Uh, just looking to hear your thoughts on the Chinese Super League, kind of the madness that it is. I mean, is this really just kind of a flash in the pan? Uh, or, you know, will this just or be a book? book? Will it be a book bear for... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> nice work if you can will, get it. Will, it, will, it just like, will this end up being, um, you know, where the Premier League is always outbid for players by the, um, you know, with Alex Tejera and stuff like that? Well, I, being a, a cynic, thought they were just using it to wash a lot of dirty money, but... Um, it's this Philippe laundry has, thing again. Philippe has other ideas. No, I, I genuinely think that um, um, the Chinese government uh, has realized that there was an awful lot of money to be made from this particular sport, and in particularly, particularly um, from the betting side of it. And we all say, we all know that um, China is <clears throat> so-called non-regulated when it comes to betting, as in you've got an awful lot of uh, online bookmakers who are breaking the law, don't give uh, monkeys about breaking the law, and the Chinese government <coughs> has put in place uh, a new lottery, which is not dissimilar to what was called Toto Calcio, mm -hmm. don't know if it still exists in, uh, in Italy. Buy a ticket, win Giovinio. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, their aim is to get this money, we're talking billions, into a legit form of betting, which would be controlled by the government. Now, you need people to invest in the clubs, and the people who are investing in the clubs at the moment, if you look more closely, are gen generally people who come from the real estate business for one simple reason, the bubble has burst, and they're looking for other areas to invest in. It's very, very serious. There's a grand plan, which is, of course, bringing the World Cup to China. There is also, I've been told, I can't give the name of the club, um, an English club who is currently um, starting a program of new training centers and academies throughout the whole of China with the cooperation of the Chinese government. So it is very, very serious. It's not a flash in the walk. 
It's not, uh, it's not a walk in the park. Um, yeah. It is not USA 1977, you know, with Pelé and so forth. It is a genuine force which is awakening in that part of the world. And uh, that's my considerate opinion. I think it's, uh, I mean, a lot of attention has fallen on the fact that players are going there uh, in their prime, um, which isn't something that um, MLS is attracting, for example. You go there, you re- you know, it's the twilight of your career, you retire. Except? 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 Italian? Jovinko, the atomic ant, that guy. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, Ch- China's attracting players who are, you know, sort of between the ages of 26 and, uh, and, and 28 and uh, are paying a lot of money for them, beating Premier League clubs to those players. Um, but... I'm sort of more intrigued by the fact that you see these um, yeah, Chinese companies buying stakes in, in clubs. You think of 30% of Atletico Madrid. Um, you know, why is Diego Simeone staying around there? Maybe because uh, he knows that there's going to be a lot of money spent. They're moving to a new stadium, um, which Chinese investment has helped. And, uh, and also you look at what's happened at City uh, as well. Um, yeah, I mean, from, from my uh, perspective... Um, you look at a club like AC uh, Milan, which was uh, seemed to be in, in, in talks for well, for the last year with a, a Thai entrepreneur who basically was bringing to China to Milan, um, and they were going to pay an absurd amount, an absurd valuation for 48% of the, the, the club, 480 million for it. So you value the club at a billion euros, which, uh, considering the state it's in, is <laughs> uh, raises a few eyebrows. But I think a lot of those people were, were involved in, the, in, in the buying the stake that's gone at City. So, hmm. I mean, football, hmm. football's been part of Chinese soft power for, for quite a while. It's been pretty much every Cup of Nations. I, I mean, I, my first Cup of Nations was 2002. Pretty much everyone I've been to, maybe not Egypt in 2006. But certainly all the ones in West Africa, the stadiums have been built by Chinese companies. Yeah. Um, you see Chinese labor, you see you know, the, the sort of... Um, like the, the camps where the Chinese labourers live, and then, you know, they, they're building oil refineries and things as well, but they build football stadiums. So, I mean, there's a, uh, a story from, from 2002 in, in Mali. Uh, I don't know if you remember Tony Silva, the Senegal goalkeeper, and there's a photograph of him in, in the main newspaper in, um, in Mali, and he, he was sort of arranging his wall at a free kick. So he's got, you know, got his hand on the post, and on the post you can see what in the newspaper was described as mysterious letters and this is a part of, part of it was right at the time when CAF was trying to crack down on witch doctors and get rid of witch doctors off a touchline and so there's, a, there's this kind of belief Ava Carnero <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's this belief that um, these mysterious letters might be some kind of juju and then it was pointed out two days later it was just the Chinese for made in China all right, next up, who's got the microphone? Yeah, I think we're down the, the middle there. On the left-hand side, is it near the back? Uh, I was just wondering, what is Jernus was one of your favourite football moments uh, throughout your careers? Do you want me to go first? What do you think about it? This is long, so like, you've got loads of time. <laughs> um, it's a couple of nations where, where the football is often awful, has to be said, but you do get these great moments. So I was there in Libreville in uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, 2012. And Zambia had, in 93, in Zambia had been, been flying for World Cup qualifying Senegal. They'd, they'd landed in Libreville to refuel. And as it took off, the plane explodes and kills everybody on board. And, and the whole team is is wiped out, apart from the great centre-forward, Kalusha Bualia, who played for PSV in the Netherlands, so he was flying from Europe, so he wasn't on, on the plane. Kalusha Bualia then did extraordinary things to, you know, to, to put the team back together. He, he's now the president of the Zambian Football Federation. And so in, in 2012, when the tournament was, the combinations was jointly held in Equatorial Guinea and, and Gabon, um, Zambia were, were based for the start of the tournament in, in Equatorial Guinea. 
And slowly as the tournament went on, it, it, you started to think, oh, actually, maybe, maybe they might get to the final. If they get to the final, this will be the first time they've been back to Libreville in the 19 years since, since the crash. And the semi-final, they were in, in, um, in Bata on the coast in Equatorial Guinea. And they, they beat Ghana 1-0. It was a huge shock. Um, and I, I remember talking to Kalisha Boilier. There was a few of us there. We, we, he was on the running track outside the pitch after the game. We were talking to him. And just tears pouring from his eyes. Kind of, and he comes out this line that still gives me a lump in my throat. He said, when we play the final against Scott d'Ivoire, it won't just be 11 players on the pitch. There'll be 11 ghosts as well. And you sort of sense that Zambia kind of believed that. They kind of sensed there was some kind of destiny, some kind of other power behind them. And uh, yeah, I don't think it matters how ridiculous you may find that idea. I think once you start to believe that in, in any sport, that makes you harder to beat. It makes you more likely to win. And the, the morning before the final, the Zambia team went down to the beach, which had been the last point of land that, that the plane had crossed in '93. And we all went down there, and it was a slightly awkward occasion. The beach was very grubby. There was loads of litter around. It was kind of, and I was sort of thinking, oh, God, this, is, this is slightly tawdry. This is not what I wanted it to be. And the, the Zambia team turned up, and they're all in track suits, and they're all you know, listening to music. And you sort of think, well, this, this doesn't feel as somber. It doesn't feel as moving as, as, as I thought it ought to be. And then they, they, they all take off their headphones. They, they get bouquets of flowers. They're all in the team track suits. And they walk out into the sea, singing this song, so, you know, some Zambian traditional song. And it is one of the most moving things I've ever seen. They lay down these bouquets in the waves. And even though there's photographers kind of clustering around to take pictures, it was incredibly powerful and emotional. And then the following night, they, they're playing Cote d'Ivoire. And um, it was nil-nil because all Cup of Nations finals do. I mean, it's been the seven Cup of Nations finals. Three goals, I mean... Um, <laughs> Didier Drogba misses a penalty, um, and it, the game goes to penalties, and it's an eternal penalty shootout. And um, uh, was it the ninth or the tenth Cote d'Ivoire penalty? And it, I think it must have been the key It must have been the ninth, and it was meant to be um, Javinho taking it, and he didn't want to take it. So Colatore starts to go forward. And then he's told to, by his coach to go, but Francois Zahoui, the, the coach tells him to go back. He wants Javinia to take it. So he goes back, and then Javinia says, no, I'm not taking it. So Colatura goes forward again. And he, so he's had to do that walk, really, that terrible walk. He has to do it twice. So he misses, obviously. Poor Colo. I mean, Colo's a lovely bloke, but awful for him to miss. And then Zambia misses. Well, yeah, oh, God, that was their chance. And then Javinia does have to go up, and obviously he misses. <laughs> And then the Zambian centre-back, whose name, name escapes me. Um, anyway, he goes forward, and I realised that he was, as he walked forward, he was singing. And all the Zambian players huddled in the centre circle were singing the song they'd been singing the previous morning. And he goes forward and scores. And Zambia have, have won the Cup of Nations for the only time, well, the first time, and I suspect the only time it'll ever happen. And they've done it in that stadium 19 years on from, from the plane crash. And you know, there's people just weeping in, in, the, in the press box. You know, people with no, I mean, me, people with no connection to Zambia. Um, so that was, that was an incredible thing to be at and to witness. So absolutely that. Nothing to add to that. James? I, I'll, I'll just add one thing, because I think the image will always remember as well is Hervé Renard in his white shirt. Well, and, and the left back, um, Musonda? Yeah. It's not an M, definitely. Uh, had been injured in the first half and wanted to go and join the celebrations. And he literally just couldn't stand. His, his leg had just gone completely. So Hervé Renard in his white shirt, open to the navel, looking like this sort of... Jaime Lannister. Jamie yeah, Lannister, yeah. yeah really, really like Jamie Lannister. Yeah, I was going to say like some Mills and Boone here, but yeah, m more like Jamie Lannister. Yeah. When he had two hands <laughs> and picks up this left back and carries him as though... He's Cersei Lannister. <laughs> well, no, because he didn't do the thing by the grave. Good, yeah. good, good. Actually, Hervé Renard, that's Harvey Fox. Is there some kind of destiny here? 
Fox. You should coach Leicester. Zambia, Leicester. I don't know. But um, actually, he looks more like the kind of guy who would have been um, one of the characters in Emmanuel, the Just Check-In film. <laughs> Hervé Renard? Not my genre. Okay. <laughs> All right, excellent question. In there. any case, it was a, a striking image. Especially, as I remember, they were filming it from the back. I'm not talking about Emmanuel here. I'm talking about Hervé Renard. And he was carrying the player, and all you could see this hair flopping about, and the shirt flopping about. But honestly, I think everybody was just crying. There was no other response. I don't think I've ever seen such a connection between a manager and his players. I mean, a really extraordinary bond. All right, next up. Hi. Yep. Hi. Um, before Spain played England last year in a friendly, Vincente Dembosque said that there's no such thing as English football. There's no style anymore. And I was wondering if you think you could say the same about Ireland. <laughs> well, Jonathan, you saw uh, what there was to see of the first leg of the playoff in Bosnia. Yeah, well, in my experience, Irish football is really misty. Um... I mean, I, I know what Del Bosco means about English football, but I, I think he's wrong. I mean, I, 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 if he means it in terms of club football, he's, I mean, he's absolutely right. If you turn on a Premier League game, if you, know, if you were transported from 20 years ago to now and you turned on a Premier League game and said, what country is this from? I, I think you'd struggle to, to, to see that as being the same type of football as English clubs play 20 years ago. But I still think at national level, there's a, there's a particularly English way of losing. Um, <laughs> The, the, when English football goes wrong, it goes wrong in a really predictable way. Um, and, and Irish football, um, I, I, you know, I think the, I, th I think both British and Irish football have, I, mean, I, I don't know, I, I'm projecting feelings here. English football has this real embarrassment about what, what English football is. We somehow we're ashamed of solid blocks of, uh, you know, tea banks of four. We're ashamed of 442. We're ashamed of the long ball because it got bastardised by Charles Hughes and it all went horribly wrong in, in the early 90s. And we still have this idea that that, that that was bad football. Well, that was the football that won the World Cup in 1966. It was the football that led Liverpool and Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa to be hugely successful in European terms, evident when the, the, uh, the Cup won his Cup. You know, pressing was as much an English invention as it was a Dutch or a, a Soviet invention. But we've lost faith in it because, um, because of Charles Hughes and because of, of poor results in the early 90s. And so what's happened is we, we now keep copying other nations that after France 98, everything, oh, Clairefontaine, that's the model we've all got to follow. Then it becomes Spain, then it becomes Germany. Well, that's always going to be a slightly uncomfortable fit because there's always going to be another nation coming along and winning the World Cup. And it takes time to impose a model. So the far better thing is to trust our own model, which worked when we had good people doing it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And my suspicion is Irish football, because so many Irish players have always played in the English league, follows a, a similar pattern. There's clearly a very close relationship there. So maybe, maybe the level of embarrassment that England feels isn't there because perhaps expectations aren't aside. There's no sense that Ireland should be dominating the world. There's, there's still this weird sense England should be dominating the world. To the, to the extent that the previous friending played against Spain, when Capello played Phil Jones in midfield, was very defensive and won one nil, which I think was his second last game. And he got hammered by loads of people for playing so defensively. It's Spain, you've won one nil. How can you complain about the style? The style was evidently you know, successful. Um, so I'm not sure if that's answered the question, but I've said some words. Well, we had to... Uh... <laughs> We had to watch Trapatoni football for three campaigns, so you know, compared to that, Martin O'Neill seems, uh, seems positively exuberant in the way he set up the team. There's uh, a couple of hands going up near the back there, as there has been for a while. I think there's a microphone Hello. on the way over. Hiya. I'd just like to hear your opinions on the, the possibility for the 60-minute rule change, where time would stop when the ball goes out of play to reduce the impact of, uh, of time wasting. Is there a need for that? I mean, the six, I mean, who is proposing? I mean, it's not Jenny Infantino who's proposing that, is it? So. So, sorry. Uh, I heard Gabriele Marcotti talking about it on TV. Ah, uh, ha, 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 ha. But he, 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 that guy. <laughs> Another phone call. Ah. Gab. He, he was shot down. It might be Infantino quickly. after all. Oh. Um, 
Um, yeah, I mean, in, in general, I mean, if we, I think if you look at the uh, amount of time which is played, it's 20, between 25 and 28 minutes, I would say, per half, something like that. Um, to be honest, I think that's, that's a ridiculous proposal. Um, and actually, I'm being very polite when I say ridiculous. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I, there, there are things... I, I, I won't take long, I promise you. Um, <laughs> but um, one thing I would love to see is uh, the clock being stopped for throw-ins, uh, for goalkeepers kicking the ball, uh, and for free kicks. I wouldn't mind that at all. Uh, and, and injuries and so forth. I wouldn't mind that at all. But that 60-minute rule, no, come on. No, no I, I, I don't have a problem with sort of five, ten seconds with a throw-in or, or, or free kick, but I, I think there is definitely a case the referees should be much stricter on time-wasting, and they shouldn't be ashamed. I, mean, I, I guess it screws up TV schedules. But I, they shouldn't be ashamed to add on 10, 15 minutes at the end of the half, if that's how much time there is to Absolutely. be added on. And I'm, I also have a problem with this idea that the time to be added on comes in these neatly parceled blocks of three minutes or four minutes or five minutes. You know, the, the rule says a minimum of three or four or five minutes. And you know, 78% of the time is exactly on the three minutes or the four minutes. And you see managers complaining. Oh, we conceded a goal after well, four minutes game? and 28 we had, seconds. We had this example recently in the Premier League, as a matter of fact, when a goal was scored in the seventh minute. Yeah, it was Chelsea again. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the celebration had taken well over 30 seconds. It had to mean something like over a minute. So the referee was absolutely in his right to do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. And, and I, I would also... Um, I would Two things i do to stop time-wasting, or to cut it down... I limit you to one substitution after the 80th minute. So you can't just bring on three players, 84, 86, 88 minutes to, to waste time. Um, and I would also, I think if you need treatment on the field, you should have to stay off for a minimum of three minutes. If you can hobble to the touchline, come back on whenever you want. But if you actually have to stop the game, get somebody to come on the pitch, you know, if, if you're so badly injured you can't get yourself to the touchline, then you're so badly injured it's going to take you three minutes to recover. So just to stop people going down, wasting time like that, I think it's less of a problem in Europe, but it's, it's a major problem in, in the African game. When I went to the Asian Cup in 2000, I mean, I'm talking 16 years ago, I haven't watched much Asian football since, but it was definitely a major problem then. So I think, I think time-wasting is an issue. I think things can be done, but two 30-minute halves... The problem right. with the substitutions, though, is what about injuries? You're going back to a situation that then that we had before substitutions were ever brought into football where a player gets injured with five minutes to go, but they've already made their one substitution after 80 minutes. But make so it before 80 minutes. On. I mean, if, if, if your substitution is going to have a tactical impact, you want more than 10 minutes for it to happen. Imagine if your goalkeeper goes up and you're 2-1 down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that would never happen. That's just, that's just too crazy. <laughs> Next up. Keep the hands going up. There's uh, one over on the left as I look by the wall. Is there a microphone over that direction? There's another one a little bit closer here, so we'll go here. Uh, hi, I was just wondering when you were talking about Arsene Wenger earlier and uh, the power that a manager can have over a football club. Why? Uh, how does he transmit this losing mentality? What is it about what he does? <laughs> how does that? How does that transmit to the players? Because obviously they've they've improved their their squad quite a lot over the past few years. So why is it still the same problem? They've improved their squad. The players are better. Than oh, I'm are. sorry. I thought you meant the result. He's obviously very good at transmitting this losing mentality. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a question of how, um, but. Uh, I think one of the criticisms of Wenger, and I think it applies um, between him and the players and between the club and him now, because the club is in his image, is that he's too loyal, and he's been too loyal for a long time. Uh, I think to a, a number of players... You say that. I could quote a few examples of players he wasn't loyal to at all. Oh, okay. Well... <laughs> uh, one which springs to mind for me is Andrei Arshavin, whom I think was absolutely wasted at Arsenal when he was the best player in that squad by a distance. Um, so I'm not too sure about that. Well, so we're disagreeing here. Welcomes some players back in uh, with open arms, doesn't he? Flamini. <laughs> <laughs> He's a player, I suppose. Um, there's this. I mean, the loyalty. I mean, when you talk about the loyalty, don't forget it's also the manager uh, who insisted on only giving 
to one of the greatest footballers who ever walked the earth, only one-year contracts because he had passed the age of 30. I'm talking about Dennis Bergkamp, of course. And um, I don't know if you can call that loyalty. Is it, Wenger, is it Wenger's fault? Is he transmitting this losing mentality? I think it's, uh, there's a, certainly a certain kind of comfort which is uh, quite obvious within the team. <clears throat> and you have to see, I mean, things like, it's, it's also in the communication. Uh, you've just um, been beaten by Manchester United. You've just been beaten by Swansea. And uh, you look at the, uh, the club's official website and you see those fluffy videos of those really nice middle-class kids uh, doing nice things. And you think, that's wrong. I, I, you should be really, really, really angry. And everybody should be really, really angry. And they're not. And it comes from... I, I, I still haven't got over. I'm sorry, I feel really bitter. And I sound very bitter, and I know that. After the game against uh, Manchester United, when I heard Wenger talking about the fact he couldn't fool the spirit of his players, uh, the intensity of their game, when all we'd, sent, we'd seen was the exact opposite of that. And there's one point where supporting your players goes too far. I don't think that you would have heard the same words from, you know, just by chance, Alex Ferguson, uh, or actually many other managers. I mean, Tony Pulis. <laughs> you wouldn't have heard that. But I think, yes, there is a, a culture of, um, I'm afraid, of... Um, I don't know what to say anymore. Well, I think I'm we, were depressed. Having, we, we, we were actually discussing this in, in, in we the were, car. Yeah, we've been discussing this for, in, forever in, with, in the, with James. And um, I think there's, there's a definite case to, to be argued that um, everything that made Wenger successful when he first arrived in, uh, in England, be it uh, nutrition, be it uh, recruitment and scouting, um, that was his edge. And um, that's now best practice. It's accepted in, in, in this country. Um, everyone's moved with the times, and he he no longer has an edge. Um, he no longer he no longer innovates. He doesn't change. Although Jonathan argued quite convincingly this uh, this morning that he, he has changed uh, their approach. But fundamentally, I think Arsene Wenger hasn't hasn't moved with the times. And and you uh, you were saying he was like an old an old professor in the. Uh, Yes, I use that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid this is, this is public, yeah. um, so I've got to be careful here. But it's a bit like, um, yes, I, as I said, this brilliant student who becomes a professor and starts these lectures, and everybody's flocking to the lectures because the guy's brilliant. Everything he says is wonderful, and it's new, and it's fresh. And then after a few years, you realize the guy's actually saying the same thing at every course, every lesson. After a while, you think, oh, God almighty. I'll just, I'll just take the notes from last year or two years or ten years ago. I'll learn them by heart and I'll be okay. And that's a bit what's happening with Arsenal. There have been changes. We talked about them, tactically speaking. In terms of the attitude, I think there is still this fundamental flaw, which is to believe that he holds a certain truth in his idea of the game and truth is big enough to win. And it doesn't work like that. Well, there's, a, there's a great line. There's, I don't know if you know the novel Infinite Jest, but the, it's the 20th anniversary this year, and there's a, a new edition just come out. It's got a great forward, and which, which contains a line which I think is pertinent to pretty much anybody who's been in any job for any long period of time. It says, all great stylists eventually become prisoners of that style. I think that's exactly what's happened to Wenger. We all know what he's going to do. I mean, he might make little tactical tweaks here and there, but essentially you know what a Wenger team is. You know how to stop a Wenger team. It's a point that Ferguson made in his... His third of the four autobiographies, the one that wasn't allowed, the penultimate one, which was the good one. Um, but he said, you know, you, you know, you knew how to play against Arsenal. You did the same thing over and over again. That Wenger has, has lapsed, unfortunately, into sort of a form of self-parody. Now, while all that is true, Arsenal now have another dilemma, which is if you get rid of a long-term leader, the result is often chaos. I mean, in, in the real world and in football, as Manchester United are finding out. We've had somebody that right down the middle, near the back, who's had their hand up pretty much the entire time, so <laughs> I think uh, this question better be good, because it's... Uh, <laughs> such a sadist you are. Excuse me? That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, the, the microphone is on the way around there now. I can see it. Now, nobody else take it off the man uh, here. He's been waiting a long time.
all that time with his hand up. That's just not fair. Can you, you hear me now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it won't really be own it. Uh, first question is going to be a two quick question. Own, um, you sit here in Ireland and you see, you sit in rugby and soccer, and there's a trend in both sports this year is we see a Connacht and Leicester, Connacht are ahead in the Pro 12 and Leicester ahead in the Premier League. Is it manager over money? And my second question is I was here two years ago and Jonathan Wilson sat there and his club was in the same position and last year I was at the Leicester and Sunderland game nil all, last game of the season. Do you think your club will survive the Premier League? Well, I didn't realise we were going to be talking about Connacht rugby at any stage tonight. <laughs> but I would Sorry, say... Sorry, I'm a Galway man, so I'm going to... Yeah, no, that's it. fair enough. Well, there, there are intermittent stories that Connacht actually get a lot more money from the IRFU than is generally accepted. But I don't know how seriously to take those, considering that they still lose their best players as they're losing Robbie Henshaw uh, next season. So I thought they're just incredibly well organised. The difference being that they are, that is a secondary competition. So, you know, there are times when all the other clubs are missing players to international uh, duty and they're not, whereas with Leicester in the Premier League, it's completely different. Every other team is, is, uh, is trying to win that competition as much as they are. Uh, moving on to Jonathan's... Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I said. Um, was was this the, the manager over money or...? Uh, it, with, are we still with Connors Ruby here? Or? No, <laughs> with, with Leicester being top... I mean, why are Leicester top of the Premier League? Nobody has a clue. I mean, it's, we, we talked about what a good job Ranieri so that's clearly part of it. There's also a remarkable stroke of luck of about half a dozen players finding the form of their lives simultaneously. There's momentum, there's other teams underperforming, there's a huge number of factors. Will Sunderland survive? Um, maybe? <laughs> I don't know, it, it's... it's I basically, I accepted some of them were going to get relegated about six years ago. <laughs> and yet, every time I look at the Premier League table, they're still in it. And I don't really, <laughs> don't really understand what's going on. I mean, if you'd asked me after the Manchester United game, which is what, it was only two weeks ago, I'd have said, oh, absolutely, definitely, we're going to survive. Because the new signings looked brilliant. You know, Kasri had, had linked really well with Van Arnholt down the left. Um, uh, Lamin Kone, he looked really good at centre-back, scored the goal. Uh, Kirchhoff... I brought real quality to the midfield. And then you see the game at West Ham, and it was so lacklustre in that game. Um, and the, the, the truth is, they've kept three clean sheets all season. Well, that's not good enough. And you, you sort of part of me for the last sort of month has been thinking, well, we'll start keeping clean sheets now because of law of averages. But it, it turns out we're, we're really pushing that law of averages, <laughs> and we might be about to break it. Um, so we're out, we're out of the relegation zone, which is miraculous. Uh, Norwich are playing pretty badly. Newcastle are hilariously terrible. Um, Swansea, I guess, is, I mean, six points clear, I think, but it's still within range. And I, I think you almost get to the point that you've got to look at, right, 10 games to go. They've got 24 points. What will survive? 38, probably. So can they get four wins and two draws in the last 10 games? Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, since Saladice arrived, that's roughly the rate they've been going at is you know, 1.2 points per game or so. So, there's a chance. But, I mean, even if they do stay up, well, so what? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a, the, I think the most depressing thing at the minute, the most depressing stat for Sunderland fans, is that yeah, Sunderland, obviously, once upon a time, were a great club. In the 1890s, us and Villa <laughs> were the two great clubs. And, you know, if you look into... You know, we won six league titles. I still put us, I think, seventh in the all-time list. In terms of uh, points won in the top division, we're, we're, we're definitely top ten, maybe, maybe even ninth. Uh, we've got the seventh highest attendances. Uh, so everything says we should be a top ten team. Um, and we finished in the top half of the, Premier, of, the, of the top division three times in the last 60 years. Or oh, 58 years. Um, <laughs> and that, that's depressing. And you know, we, did, we, we, we were never relegated in 1958. We were the team who had the longest unbroken stint without ever being relegated. And then we get relegated for the first time in 1958. And since then, this is our longest sustained spell in top flight. Nine, this is the ninth season. So this, I mean, it's not, it's not the golden age of the 1890s, but it's very much a, a silver age. But it feels fucking terrible. 
All right, Fred, I think the question was worth waiting for. In the end, we've got, we'll go for one or two more uh, up here. I think everyone's, everyone seems to have, have their voice tonight, so there's one over to my right here. I've got two questions. Um, the first one is, again, a Sunderland one for Jonathan. Um, as a Sunderland fan, do you think that Sunderland should have handled the, um, dare I say it, Adam Johnson affair differently? Okay, I'll, I'll do that quickly before we come to the second one. And, 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 um, it's a minor thing, Jonathan. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the club has very, very serious questions Jonathan, to answer. Jonathan, you can do one of these. <laughs> Pretend your mic, mic is not working. <laughs> I, I think the club has very, very serious questions to answer. That uh, I think, well, certainly I, I felt very uncomfortable when, the, well, you know, when Johnson was first charged, he was suspended. That suspension was lifted after a couple of weeks. And I felt very uncomfortable then, and I think a lot of fans did. And I think the assumption then was that Everybody thought this was a you know a bit of a storm in a teacup that it wasn't that serious. It turns out to be extremely serious, and you know the stories that the the club had access to the uh, WhatsApp messages. If that's true, and they read them, I don't really understand how they could have interpreted them in any any other way than you know the, the worst possible way. Um, I, I yeah I, I'm reluctant to. Um, to say that employers should be prejudging criminal trials, but at the same time, I do think when there's significant evidence, you, you, you should suspend the player. So uh, at the minute, we're still uncertain exactly what the club knew, and until that's established, the, then I think it'd be wrong to, to uh, be too definitive about it. But yeah, there's very, very serious questions to answer. Jonathan, can I ask you a question here? Because um... About paedophilia, please don't. <laughs> <coughs> Could I get an answer, please? Um, you talk about this chap. Uh, we've got a chap in France uh, who's been recorded uh, talking to his chums. One of his chums who's done eight years in jail at the age of 32. Um, and they're basically talking about extorting money from a fellow player. Um, I mean, which is purely hypothetical. <laughs> Not naming names here. What would you do? I don't see how you can possibly pick him. I mean, irrespective of the criminal aspect, the uh, issue of morale, you know, to do that to a teammate, a hypothetical teammate, sorry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't see how that's anything other than, than poisonous to the atmosphere in the dressing room. I think we've said everything we need to say. There was, the a, the there was a second team. part of the question, wasn't there? Yeah. The second question is quite different. Um, if, each, <laughs> if, if, if each of you was hired by Jurgen Klopp as, an, as a consultant, would you advise him to clear out the squad and start again? Or would you advise him to buy two or three key top-level players that would make all the difference? Isn't that the answer to the first question? Uh, if I were Jurgen Klopp, I wouldn't have taken that job in the first place. So, uh, <laughs> Would you not? No, because um, I think there are, there are a lot of reasons for Klopp to have taken it. Uh, from the fact that he's an emotional manager, he played a lot off the, uh, off the 12th man, if you like, at Dortmund. It could have the same effect that you could have at Liverpool. Uh, with Anfield really sort of channel that. And we've seen he, the efforts he's made to do that um, in, what, his first four to six months. But I do think he must be kicking himself when you look at, uh, himself when you look at some of the other jobs that have come up, the, uh, the other opportunities at those clubs. I think, um, 
I would question this. You judgment. both look a bit surprised by that, John. I, well, I'm really not sure about that. I mean, it, maybe he is motivated by nothing other than success in term, yeah, as measured by trophies and I guess cash. But I, I, I think I think there is a romantic aspect to Klopp, and I think he is really excited by the idea of taking this fallen giant and making them great again. And he he almost sees one title with Liverpool as being greater than you know three titles with with Bayern Munich. I mean, what does that say about Liverpool, though? I mean, it's kind of like the same, same mentality that uh, a Roma or a Hellas Verona have in Italy. You know, like one Scudetto here is worth 10 in Turin or Milan. I mean, that's not where Liverpool should be. I mean, but it is where they are. It is where they are, but I mean... But I mean, given that is where they are, it's better to recognise that than to pretend they're anything else, yeah. because that's how you're going to resolve it. Well, that's so. what Brendan did, so... <laughs> one more question. Anyway, sorry, the answer to the question is, I, I think evolution is always better than... Yeah, ripping out and starting again. I don't think he needs to rip it out and start again. Three or I, four I also changes. think it, this is an age in which we constantly hear um, players and managers talking about challenges, and, and, and these challenges, honestly, they're not challenges at all. Uh, there's one probably in Munich at the moment wondering if the challenge of taking over the uh, ex-champion of England is such a good idea at the moment, right? Um, that's a genuine challenge. Liverpool is a huge club. Um, there is a connection between the public and him and his players, fairly obviously, which is quite astonishing to see. And I genuinely, I genuinely can't see why that's wrong. I, I, I think it's a, for me it's a match which is absolutely made in heaven. That's, I, I genuinely think so. And I do hope I'm proved right, by the way. I'm I'm not saying it's wrong. Last question? That's what you said. So much pressure on this one, even more than our friend up above. Uh, hey, Owen. Uh, nice, easy one just to finish off. Simple yes or no. Um, <clears throat> considering that the uh, club game has run so well at an amateur level, uh, we've seen a lot of corporate uh, governance issues um, in football, both at a national level here in Ireland, I would suggest, and uh, globally, obviously, with the uh, current cases that are ongoing against... Uh, the incumbent president and his general secretary. Um, so I would suggest, sorry, I would, I would ask the panel, I beg your pardon, how can we uh, improve and change things? Does change come from the uh, top down or does it need to come from the bottom up? Top down or bottom up, how do we change things if we're, if we're talking FIFA? Jesus. Well, David Hasselhoff <laughs> brought the uh, Berlin Wall down. I so. thought we were. <laughs> So Sepp Blatter in the role of Erich Onneker, something like that. Um, I think the, uh, the, 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 there is no simple answer to that. I'm still of the opinion, I think we talked about this last time we were around, that the genuine problem doesn't lie within FIFA, but lies within the federations and the confederations, which are rotten to the core. And it's unfortunately not by changing what is happening in Zurich, um, even though it will do some good, without a doubt, and there have been efforts to do so, that will change the uh, culture of corruption and the moral rot as well as the financial corruption that's, that's really eating at the game. The root of the evil is uh, far, far deeper than that. It is not going to be something... If you want to change football, it's not going to be just by changing FIFA, the president, certainly not. Not changing the structure of FIFA is by roots action at, at the very roots of the game. It means looking at your own federation. <laughs> Who is in charge? Looking at my own federation. Who is in charge? Looking at the confederations. Looking at um, not just CONCACAF and CONMEBOL and the Africans because they're not Europeans, you know? They're different people. But looking at UEFA, wondering how it can be that a club like Olympiakos can take part in the Champions League despite its president have been found guilty of match-fixing. Looking at the way that uh, Turkish clubs, they are able to operate. Looking at the way that third-party ownership is allowed to fester within the confederation. This is absolutely, I mean, the, the, the answer doesn't lie in 
knocking the top of the dandelion or the poppy in the field. It lies with actually flattening the field and building it again. And to finish on a slightly lighter note, can I ask any of you for your strangest interaction with the football person, the footballer, or somebody in the game? Shall I go first? By all means, go. Uh, go on, James. Well, um, both of mine happened in the uh, Chelsea press room. Uh, a, a, a colleague of uh, a colleague of mine who uh, we might have called earlier. Uh, we. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were discussing uh, doping in football, and particularly in Italy in the nineties. And um, uh, a player who played in that era walked past, um, and uh, he wasn't involved because he's a great guy. He's a can lovely we, guy. Can we have he's, the uh, initials, please? No, it was uh, it was it was Massa Desai, and uh, and uh, and so Mick and I were having this conversation, and all of a sudden there was a tap on my shoulder, and it was Massa Desai, and we're like, fuck, <laughs> shit. He heard us. Oh God! And um, he—he—he he basically um, he'd, he'd gone to the lovely uh, buffet at Chelsea, which is uh, incredible. And he—he uh, he had a plate with him, and uh, he presented me with his uh, his phone, uh, which was odd. And now he's like, okay. And uh, he made me take a fi- pit- picture of him eating this uh, dinner out out as though he was eating it out of the bin, um, <laughs> because because he thought it was great. Uh, more or less the same. I think it was it, the same season. Definitely, um, I was uh, I was again in the Chelsea press room, um, and uh, I decided to go to the toilet there. And the toilet's tiny in the Chelsea. There, there's only two urinals, and uh, I was I was stood um, on my own in there, and uh, and then all of a sudden this presence uh, is stood next to me. Um, You're and not I talking can about Claude Makélélé by any chance? No, no. <laughs> Yeah. The uh, the anaconda wasn't present, but uh, his his one of his predecessors was, and it was Dubes Michael Dubry, and uh, I, I've I've never felt smaller in my life, and um, and uh, I was asked a question a few weeks ago, uh, which was uh, James, you know, in your time in in journalism and football, you must have come across some some big dicks, and I was like. <laughs> Literally, yes, I have. <laughs> so, there you go. I, I, I'm, if we can give two, I'm going to give two themed answers as well. Both of these happened in 2009 during the Confederations Cup in South Africa. And there was, a, there was a night we'd been at a game, and I was with Duncan White, who at the time was at the Sunday Telegraph, and Tarek Panja, who uh, works at Bloomberg, who's, who's been... Uh, hugely uh, useful in terms of exposing stuff at FIFA. Um, and because he's an agency journalist, he's never off his laptop. You know, agency journalists are always terrified they miss anything. And so he's sitting there, we're, we're having a drink in uh, a bar in the um, Michelangelo bar in the Millennium Hotel or Millennium Bar in the Michelangelo, one of the two. A uh, nice hotel, very nice hotel in, in Santa in the middle of Johannesburg. And um, Gerard Ullier is at the next table with a load of Japanese journalists. And Tarek's got his laptop open and he suddenly gets a, a news alert on the screen that Michael Jackson is dead. And so he tells me, and my first reaction, I don't really know why, I was to look at Joe Lilly and go, Michael Jackson's dead. <laughs> and he looked at me and went, huh? <laughs> And I then went to the toilet, and as I was coming back, I passed... Um, Michael Dubry. No. Um, <laughs> Christine Carambo. And I said, Christian, Michael Jackson's dead. He, went, he said, clearly, Michael Jackson's just not, not significant to the French team of the mid-90s. But then, <laughs> later in that same tournament, I did the, the semi-final uh, between Spain and the USA uh, when Spain lost their 35 games, 36 game unbeaten run. The USA beat them. And because um, there's was hardly any journalists there, uh, it was very strange. Not in, you have this thing called the mix zone after games where uh, there's a space between the dressing room and the, and the bus where the players walk, walk through and the journalists can, in theory, uh, talk to them. There's a barrier down the middle because obviously the one's getting too close. And normally it's this terrible bonfire. Everybody's sticking their dictaphone in and, 
And Fernando, Fernando, word for English. But because there's no journalists there, the Spain team essentially come over to us. And we've basically, we've already interviewed every single one of the English speakers. So we, you just, you lost the USA, you say it's a story. And we talked to Pepe Reina, who talked about losing the record. So essentially, we just weren't interested. And Fernando Torres was there, Arbaloa, uh, Xavi Alonso, maybe somebody else. Anyway, those three were definitely there. So I ended up just having a chat to Fernando Torres, and we were in Bloemfontein. And I, I, you may know this, Fernando Torres has um, a tattoo on his left forearm, which is his own name in the Elvish language of Tengwa. Uh, Sergio Aguero also has his own name in, in Tengwa on his forearm, because he's obviously massive at Atletico Madrid sometime. <laughs> so I, I, I said to, to Torres, um, yeah, you have your, your name in in the other language of Tengwa on your forearm, uh, you must be a huge fan of Tolkien. Oh, yeah, I, lo I love Tolkien. And did you know that he was born in Blumfontein? You can go and visit his old house. He lived here until he was three. And then he got bitten by a spider in the garden. And his nurse had to suck the poison out. And his mother panicked and sent him to Birmingham to be safe. And he went, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> and... <laughs> and, and he then says... A spider? I said, yeah, a spider. And he said, well, that explains something I never understood, which is why the last big monster that Frodo has to fight is Shelob, the massive spider. <laughs> Tolkien clearly had this deep-rooted terror of spiders. <laughs> and, yeah, literary criticism with Fernando Torres. <laughs> Folks, you've been absolutely brilliant tonight. I've got to say, I did mean to say at the start of the second part here that if anyone managed to finish that apparently impossibly hard crossword, if anyone did manage that, you can bring it up to Gareth here and uh, try to look for some, badger him for some prizes when we're wrapped up here. But that's pretty much it from us. Uh, massive round of applause. Hope you enjoy the night for James Horncastle, Jonathan Wilson, and Philippe O'Clair. Thank you.